0: I <laughs> think uh. <laughs> <Anyway. laughs> gun sure looks deadly, but it's not the least bit deadly unless I point it at someone and pull the trigger. Gentlemen, this is Democracy Manifest.
1: Hello, everybody, and welcome to Repeal the 20th Century. With me, I have uh, Stephen Carson with me. Would you like to introduce
0: yourself? Yes. Hi, Stephen Carson. Uh, I run a channel on YouTube called Radical Liberation and an associated substack, which I am just starting on, but maybe a little more relevant to some of the things we'll be talking about today, and, um, and a Telegram channel, etc. All all with radical liberation on it. So online, people have a tendency to call me RadLib, but of course, I answer to my birth name as well. <laughs> yeah.
1: Um, I appreciate you coming on. I, I wanted to have you after I had discovered your YouTube channel and um, some of the ideas you've been developing, particularly what stuck out to me um, because it was very it was actually quite jarring the first time I heard the phrase. but medieval anarchy was was one that I think is is interesting and also I think will be interesting to a lot of people watching this. Um, so I kind of wanted to ask, what exactly is medieval anarchy?
0: Well, I mean, to some degree, it's, 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 uh, it's not meant to be uh, precise in a scholarly way necessarily, right? I, I don't know that I would wanna stand before a panel of political scientists and medievalists and defend the term medieval anarchy. Having said that, um, our trusted historian, Apostolic Majesty, before I started using that term um i actually ran it by him and told him what i had in mind and he gave me the thumbs up so let me explain what i have in mind and that is that relative to the massive territorially massive and massive in many other ways bureaucratically and so forth modern nation state um when we look to medieval europe we don't really see anything like that instead we see uh power, authority, whatever term you prefer, divided in a number of ways. Most obviously is that if you look at, um sure, of the, what's it called? The Holy Roman Empire, right? Um, from, I don't know, a thousand years ago, 800 years ago, it looks like a patchwork quilt. It's a phrase I like using. Um, it's a ton of principalities and dukedoms and bishoprics and so on and so forth. Uh, there, there's a lot of them. They're mostly quite small, um, but that doesn't even tell the full story because as we know, it wasn't just that power was divided sort of horizontal, horizontally, horizontally and politically, but also that you know, the church was a big player and um, a prince you know, could to some degree flout the church, but he couldn't go too far before everyone would turn against him because you know he'd get ex- excommunicated or whatever and everybody'd say well i'm not going to listen to you you just got excommunicated by the bishop <laughs> yeah um so so in other words not only was it decentralized politically but there were other checks on political power so it was just what my point is relative to what we experience now um it was it might as well have been anarchy so mm-hmm. that's why i call it medieval anarchy
1: Yeah, I I had from reading what you had to say uh, about it, you know, it was it was quick to me that, you know, medieval anarchy is a kind of it's a relative kind of thing where um, in comparison to all of what we have now in the sense of modern states, it it is very, you know, it looks very much like anarchy. Um, And I think Murray Rothbard said very similar things, you know, a, a quote leftists like to trudge out is, is um, him commenting on whether or not anarcho-capitalists are really anarchists and he says no in the sense of this original definition of anarchy but when we look at what we want comparatively it seems like anarchy it is it is very much decentralized and very different and that is why we use that term so i found it interesting right. when you looked at that because I feel like in my own study of medieval history, I've come to come to the same conclusion uh, Mm. about that, that it is a very like decentralized system. And so I wanted to ask about that, though, is is the particulars of, you know, that kind of decentralized system and um, kind of why it it stopped being that way, in your opinion.
0: (laughs) Right. Okay, well, first of all, just one more comment on the term itself and and sort of why I would justify using that term. I I love what you brought up about Rothbard. I'd like to know where that quote is, in fact. Um, But, uh, you know, you could just imagine like a neocon, right, Um, saying that, you know, our vision for the United States is, and bringing up a map of the Holy Roman Empire from 1200, right? And what would their reaction be? It would be, that would be anarchy, right? (laughs) Right. we we won't be able to, you know, run a global empire with that kind of thing going on. Right. um So. So I think it's quite a defensible term, if nothing else, for the uh to, to evoke the right emotional reaction and to get people thinking. Right. OK. Yeah. So I, I'm remembering the second part, but I feel like you really kind of asked a two part question. The second part is how did we lose medieval anarchy? What, what's the first part? Uh,
1: the first part would kind of be like just. How did that really play out in in this sense? What did it really look like um, in, in the terms of a government structure uh, that is so different from today? Um, besides yeah. the, the general well, you, things. You,
0: you, you may be more of a specialist already in this area than me, but let me just share some thoughts and maybe you can elucidate or, or tell me that I'm wrong. Um, one of the things that I, I seem to notice when I compare what we have in modern times, and let's, let's say in particular post-French Revolution, right? Um, the modern nation state as we have it uh, introduced in the French Revolution and after. Um, it's uh, more bureaucratic and impersonal, where it seems to me that the more I learn about the Middle Ages, I see that it is uh, personal. Okay, so um, we do not, have a special um, bond or oath now to our mayor, (laughs) Mm -hmm. right? But in the middle, 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 medieval times, that would be quite, uh, that would be quite normal that you would have some kind of um, a line drawn between you and someone that isn't just a line of like, you know, there's some bureaucratic bureaucrat that's been put in charge or some politician or something, but you have a, a sense of personal loyalty and there's um a bilateral obligation right you have obligations to you know your lord or whatever or your duke but they in turn they have obligations to you which you can call on right Mm -hmm. um and and uh i mean just imagine trying to go to uh i don't know your representative or your senator and saying you know you have to do this for me you know we have a bilateral personal relationship here right i mean they'd be like what, what in the hell are you talking about you
1: know <laughs> yeah yeah I, I i think that that component of it is particularly interesting because the, the relationship between ruler and ruled is also very different and in a lot of ways uh you would say i would say the the ruler has less prevalence in your life in the medieval time than, than, than now um in a lot of cases in some cases, obviously not, but it, you know that that relationship. But also, but also it's just. But also, it's just
0: different. Mm-hmm. It is. It right? is. Yes. It's not just a matter of degree; it's a matter of kind. Mm-hmm. The relationship is a different sort of relationship. Mm-hmm. Right. It's it's more personal. Uh, Eric von Knoell Ladin, who's greatly influenced me in all this, by the way. Um, he uh emphasizes the family nature of. A monarchical or noble system; it's all based around families, right? Um, and in fact, it it you know I talked about a personal kind of a bond, but often there seems to be um, family relationships. You know, this family uh, has a certain role in society, and and that family has a relation to another family, right? And so he says, in a way, we 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 misconceive monarchy because we put an individualism that's anachronistic on it right mm-hmm. so when we think about monarchy we think about the king but canola dean says when you think about monarchy you should think about the family the royal family um and so Hoppe, for example emphasizes that um when you got a king that was sort of screwing it up for everybody you know like hey we got a pretty good deal going here and you're such a nut that you're gonna you're gonna get us all thrown out of of our role in this society um, they would often uh, relieve that person or that family member of their duties uh, potentially by assassination by a brother or a cousin right <laughs> um, and that is that is easier to understand if you understand that it's a family not not just an individual king mm-hmm. he is the he is the um, head of the family and that's why he is in that position of rulership right? Yeah, I,
1: I I think actually the way you describe it is, is much better than where I was going with it. Of uh, It is a difference of kind, not degree, because I mean, we can look at all different kinds of examples. And I think more than the variation you see with the modern state, you see a lot more diversity in the degree. And I think it is because of that difference in kind um, in that relationship between ruler and ruled. Um, but to get to the second part of that question, which uh, framing it yeah, as a how, two-parter how is a little more, it? yeah. How do we lose? How did we lose it? Because <laughs> I mean, this sounds great just from the little we've touched upon it. But why is it gone? If it was so great.
0: Um, okay. Well, if you excuse me, sir, I like to drop a uh, uh, footnote, so to speak, as I talk. Right. Because I, I uh, I'm always hoping for. The, the one listener out there, right? The Kierkegaardian individual who's <laughs> who's embracing what we're hearing and and wants to go deeper with it. So I mentioned Eric von knoll Ladin. That's a hard name to look up, but you might try looking up Liberty or Equality. And in Liberty or Equality, he first critiques democracy. And you'll see a lot if you've read Hoppe, you'll you'll see a lot of things in knoll Dean's that Hoppe synthesized, right? lot of arguments. First, he critiques democracy, and then he says, well, it's not quite fair to just critique democracy because you could pull the old, you know, yeah, well, it's bad, but, you know, all the other systems are worse. So he says, why don't we compare it to another system? How about one we have vast experience with? Namely, monarchy in Europe, which lasted for a long time, right? Um, And so what you end up with is not just a critique of democracy, but a defense or an apologia for monarchy, where he explains, um, some of the things I'm saying—the the family nature of it, the personal nature of it—and he does—he does more than that. Um, the international nature of it, which is quite a, quite inter, a, a totally different angle that you might not expect. Um, so, recommended reading and Kanoldt uh, Medina is one of the best reads. Every every sentence sends you could send you down a rabbit hole because he just knows everything and knows a gazillion languages, and <laughs> it's just rich, rich reading. Anyway, so having given you that uh, tip. Um, how did we lose it? Well, <clears throat> I do not, I would say that I have not put that story together. Let me give you some initial thoughts. Number one, I don't think that it was, um, as my friend academic agent likes to say, uh, we don't necessarily believe in things just happening emer- as emergent in politics or spontaneous. Um, these things are pushed for, you know, uh, someone has a plan and they execute the plan. Uh, you could say we're conspiracy theorists, if you want to use use uh, conspiracy theory in that broad sense of meaning people had plans. <laughs> um, there's a shift towards absolutism in modern European history. And by modern European history, I'm talking about like four to five hundred years. Because uh, remember, medieval Europe lasted for quite a long time. I mean, the, the period I'm thinking of is probably a, a thousand years long. Um, And uh, but then you get this focus, I think, on um, sovereignty as a sort of a concept, an idea, as opposed to a lived reality, you know, Um, and uh, a big obsession with like we've got to make sure that sovereignty isn't divided and all this sort of stuff. And of course, what the Middle Ages is, uh, we were just explicating, it was all about divided sovereignty, right? so you start getting these notions that uh, the sovereignty has to be unitary and um, and uh, you start seeing consolidation. So I don't know if the ideas came first, if it was just someone figured out the grift um, that you could, by taking over really vast territory, you could make it depersonal, depersonalize it and therefore rip people off more efficiently. I, I don't know. I don't know what came first. I'm sure it all sort of went together. But one way or another, you went from that patchwork quilt that I described. And if you haven't seen that map, I'd recommend you do it. Look up like Holy Roman Empire 1200 or something like that. It's, it's beautiful to me. It's a beautiful sight. <laughs> um, uh, you go from that to the consolidation that we see in Europe. And remember, this is this really is quite, in some cases, quite recent in history, given the span of thousands of years of recorded history. Um, Germany as a consolidated nation state didn't exist until the late 19th century. The same is true for Italy. Um, I was just reading something and he was talking about the German and Italian princes in the 18th century. They didn't talk about a German king. There was no German king because there was no United German kingdom. There were all these decentralized things. So, you know, the, this thing I'm talking about is not, such a crazy like you know we'd have to go back to the stone age or something And i'm talking about doing things in a way that europeans our ancestors were doing them uh, 150 years ago you know I mean, it's really a blink of an eye historically
1: yeah so uh, something about that though i think you bring up um where i kind of wanted to go with it too is um because a lot of people when they hear about you know medieval type of societies and when you make this case of you know that we had decentralized societies all these you know many years ago a lot of the times they'll go well that was so long ago um though you bring up the great example of of germany just you know about 150 years ago they, they go oh that was so long ago and the conditions are not the same particularly there aren't you know lines of monarchs that really exist and are proliferated so so how would we actually go back to that how how would we achieve that and what would it actually look like in the modern era is there is there a question and i kind of wanted to pose that to you of Mm -hmm. you know how how do we go back to that um how do we you know turn that clock kind of back and um what would that look like? Would it look the exact same or would it you know, be kind of different?
0: Well, I think it might be less difficult than people imagine because there's a presumption, partially because of constant propaganda about centralization, in favor of centralization and consolidation. Um, there's a presumption that that has got this massive sort of energy, sort of natural energy behind it But that's not how I see it. It seems to me that, um, you know, families are more natural. (laughs) Uh, We still have them more or less. Um, Communities, which is essentially a selection of a collection of families, right? That live near each other. Um, Communities are are natural. Uh, Whereas I don't think the nation state ruling over a territory of hundreds of millions of people Is particularly natural. I I think, in fact, uh, and here some of my Austrian economics comes into play. I think, in fact, it's only propped up by things that are highly artificial and fragile. Um, I remember someone saying, imagine what it must be like to have to, um, you know, every week, every day, every hour be trying to, you know, keep that boulder from rolling on you, rolling down the hill on you, right? That's how I picture the system. Um, It is only maintained through a lot of uh, force, a lot of theft, um, to to some degree, exile as we've seen uh, recently um, uh, and assassination. Um, It's not a system that is just gonna run on its own. If they don't do all this or it falls apart on them, right? Because of, you know, a, an economic collapse or something like that, which their actions make very likely. Um, if it, if it, uh, it, it It is likely to go into a more decentralized mode, in my view. Now, at that point, let's imagine that, um, you know, the system falls apart. And suddenly people are like, okay, well, what do we do now? <laughs> um, this is the thing that's so hard, right? How do you how do you um, return to tradition, or maybe you don't return exactly, but how do you do something along the lines of medieval anarchism, but but in a way that works for us now? Um, and I don't know. I, I I think step one is always to pull the Trump maneuver, right, which is you you lay out your uh, a position that sounds crazy and gets everybody talking about it, and suddenly something that maybe isn't that position but is in the direction of that position becomes something that people can imagine, right? So I'm going to keep on talking about medieval anarchy, and maybe we'll get, you know, say the 50 states of the United States back to being states again instead of administrative uh, departments of a national government, you know? <laughs> that would be great. I mean, that'd be a step in the right direction from my view. It wouldn't be it wouldn't be the Holy Roman Empire 1200, but it'd be better than where we're at now.
1: Yeah, I, I, I have to actually really agree with you on how I think a lot of people overestimate how hard it would be to go back to that, because I, I really like the the kind of picture you were painting with how the system is with the boulder and having to keep that up, uh, you know, because when it, when it comes to... Uh, financial situation obvious. often how i explain it to people when they're like oh how how do we keep having these booms and busts you know where is the that final bust and everything it's like well think of it as, of like a like a tire that you keep inflating and it keeps getting holes <laughs> and then you just pass right. the holes i think the same can be applied to the systems of power where it right. really is you know a glass cannon um that that could break apart um if it doesn't do these things or even by doing the things that artificially maintain its power. But we we have been talking a lot about the artificial versus natural power kind of here in this dynamic and how medieval societies were more wielding natural power versus this like artificial power that modern states kind of wield. Mm. Uh, I kind of wanted to expand upon the, the, the difference between the two what that what those r- differences really are
0: yeah um, one last thought um, before we get into artificial versus natural because yeah what do we mean by that and, and uh, I may struggle to be very precise but I'll do my best um, just one more point about the fragility of the system something else I take as an indicator is um, how scared we see the regime and its sycophants get Sometimes, right? Like Trump, it turned out was not exactly um, a lion that, that some of us might have hoped. Right? Um, that is someone who was going to be decisive, bold, take unpopular positions, and say, "Sorry, this is what's right for America." And I know your special interest group isn't happy with it, but that's tough, you know? Right? That's that's what some people thought they were getting when they voted for Trump. Um, and he didn't turn out to be quite that way, right? And yet, they seem to genuinely be freaked out about Trump. I don't think they were just pretending. that That's my sense. I mean, there were people who were like having panic attacks when he won the election. <laughs> mm-hmm. People I know. Um, they really, as, as, as weak as it was, uh, a break from sort of the status quo of the regime it really freaked them out. Now, to me, when you are confident in the strength of your position, then you don't get freaked out by a little, you know, one presidential term that isn't 100% under your control, right? It's like, yeah, whatever, we'll be back in control next time, you know, right? Um, But they didn't act like that. They didn't act with sort of calm confidence of being in control. They acted like we are barely keeping this thing together. And this could be the this could be the moment where we lose it and it all comes tumbling down. That, that's what I felt from, from them. Um, so I, I take that as an indicator of the fragility of the system anyway. So artificial versus natural. Yeah. So I had a really interesting discussion. Uh, uh, I was honored to be a, a part of it for just a moment with um, Joseph Sobrin, the late Joseph Sobrin, and Hans Hermann Hoppe. I'm trying to remember who else was at the table. Um, at the Mises Institute. And we were talking about what to call this thing, you know. Um, They were saying, man, we hate the term anarchy. It's just, it's got that bad connotation of chaos, you know. Um, I guess part of the reason why I've done said medieval anarchism is because that allows, uh, um, I, I feel like the medieval takes some of the curse off the term anarchism. or or makes people think about something different, maybe. Um, So, you know, we were talking about what's a better marketing term for what we, what we all have in mind, a decentralized order, you know, so so Hoppe said, you know, I really like natural order. Um, And in fact, I think he uses that in some of his writings. I forget what uh, Sopran said, but we were all kind of tossing terms back and forth, trying to come up with some way to in in essence, appeal to more conservatively minded people who are the ones that we think would find this order a better Mm -hmm. fit for them. Um, But the term anarchy just is, it turns off exactly the target audience, right? So that's kind of a problem. Uh, So yeah, artificial versus natural. Well, I mean, what first comes to mind is exactly what I've been painting. Something that's natural, isn't so darn hard to keep stable. Um, so in economics, for example, we talk about how um, there are no cycles in the free market. Um, you know, the the um, general depressions or you know, bus booms and busts. Uh, booms and busts are introduced by um, monetary intervention through a central bank or something like that, right? So. That is, the natural system in this case, just trying to think of a few examples of natural versus artificial. The natural system is just what happens when people are able to, you know, peacefully buy and sell and trade and so forth, right? Whereas the artificial system is something that is um, introduced by uh, you know, non-peaceful action, right? Ripping people off basically. And it induces this brittle kind of a, a state that that um, is more chaotic, right? It, it makes me think, sorry, another economic, a lot of grounding in economics. Another economics example is that um, in a relatively free market era in the 19th century, prices deflated and that was good but it was gentle so what does a price deflating means it means that the money in your pocket becomes more valuable over time that is you know as the economy gets more productive and we get better at making things and goods are therefore um uh cheaper to purchase and so forth you can literally just hold on to money and get more for it next year than you could this year so your money becomes more valuable over time we now are used to money becoming less valuable over time right but to me it's the gentle nature of it that I want to call call out here. Money deflated but didn't deflate in any kind of drastic way. Right. Um it, um it it was a gradual over decades you could see the effect of the gradual deflation. Whereas in the 20th century, we saw hyperinflations and you know huge swings, you know. This is this is the nature of the artificial. It is um, dramatic, traumatic. <laughs> um, it is only maintains itself through uh, constant intervention. It isn't just what would happen anyway, right? Whereas I think when we talk about a natural order, we talk about people getting married, having children, working, cooperating with each other, forming communities, this is just what humans do generally. Um, it's, it's sort of the natural state of, of humans as social animals. You don't have to have a central bureaucracy making people get married and have children, right? They, they just do that. So that's the natural order. The artificial order is this whole bureaucratic apparatus on top trying to socially engineer uh, everybody to become something they wouldn't have been on their own
1: right yeah i i think the the tying it into economics is very apt you know when when we consider economics you know as actually the study of human action rather than you know what many you know mainstream economists will kind of construe it to be and then becomes the mainstream thought in the sense of oh it's just about you know like money vaguely about money um so i i'm glad you tied it into that uh specifically because i think something that touches on there with this dichotomy between natural and uh, artificial um power is is the idea that you know governance itself is a good or a service um that is to be exchanged and that you know In the medieval times, these these monarchs, these aristocrats, they traded governance, um, you know, for goods, um, good governance. And so that's kind of why they would be labeled as natural versus artificial elites and kind of getting into that. Um, So I I appreciate you making that distinction because I think a lot of people don't know about that distinction um even people yeah who are in these circles. natural
0: elites natural elites versus artificial elites you, you got me inspired here to make a further comment so um yeah let's think about natural versus artificial in terms of elites hopper writes about natural elites right and he um says that of course it's just we we know we know this as as people who know other people of course some people are gifted in certain areas more than others so uh, if you have a, a group of people studying math, you're going to find that some of them are better at math than the others, right? And they're going to arise to be a natural mathematical elite if nothing gets in the way, right? People will just recognize that, yeah, you can trust you can trust how he uh, how him as a mathematician, he's really sharp, you know. That's a natural elite, right? Um, so in a, in a natural order, the natural elites tend to be rising to places of leadership, or at least um, expertise. You know, people just recognize they have expertise and they go to them, right? Um, In an artificial system, you have what we have now, right? Which is that uh, Biden, who as far as I can tell, no one, even Democrats, (laughs) think he should be president at this point, right? Um, Well, how is he still president? I mean, in a natural order, it would just be like, well, he he can't be in charge, clearly. I mean, he's just not in shape for it mentally and so forth, you know? Um, but in an artificial order, you get this. You get artificial elites, right? People who have no business being in leadership, uh, but the system keeps them there anyway mm-hmm. to sort of bewilderment of everyone, right? It's not because we all really thought Biden was the best guy for the job. I mean, let's be real, right? <laughs>
1: Yeah, I I I think that is a, a very good point in in bringing that up in the further distinguishing natural versus artificial elites uh because I think when it comes to the system we have versus, you know, what you would describe as medieval anarchy, that is the big difference there. Um that the power and the elites are natural versus artificial which is also why i like when people make the distinction between um state and modern state uh when we talk about the state because i think you know our our, our system that we advocate for you know if, if you really want to boil it down you could probably connect it to being a state but not in the sense that we have today and this is, Compared right. to what we have today, it very much is anarchy. So I very much appreciate you making that distinction and, and, and expanding upon them uh, in this way. So uh, I did want to wrap up, though, but I wanted to give you uh, the time as I give all my guests to promote anything to my audience that they think that you think they should see. Check out, read any, uh, anything you've got going on right now uh, that you would like them to know about.
0: Sorry, it's so new I'm having to pull it up, my substack here. Uh, I just started a substack, so I thought I'd mention that. So the main thing I've been doing is a YouTube channel. I used to write for Uh Lou Rockwell is the founder of the Mises Institute, the Ludwig von Mises Institute in Auburn, Alabama, which I've uh, been to dozens of times. I don't know, a lot. I've been there a lot um, and uh, worked for them a little bit at, at one point. Um, LouRockwell.com was a site that I was writing for, uh, and my wife as well, uh, around 20 years ago. And um, then we had eight children. We were blessed with eight children. And that kind of took me away from uh, my interest in political things and so forth. And so um, I have returned now. Wow, sorry, I'm so new to, there it is. Okay, yeah, I was just trying to get to the thing. Okay, there it is. I wanted to give you the URL. So I've re- I decided to return back to political economy and things like this um, with a YouTube channel. This and with the help of my friend, academic agent, I was able to, you know, get it to be a channel with some subscribers and not something that just flies under the radar. Uh, so you know, I've, I've been working on growing that, and so I have a weekly show, every live every Thursday on the channel Radical Liberation on YouTube and the subhead is politics, economics, I'm sorry, economics, politics, history, which is more or less the order we do things. Though right now we're doing a series on left-wing terror. Um, We just talked about the massacre in the Vendee Vendee, during the French Revolution, for example, um, yesterday. Uh, On once a month, I do a series with my wife Uh, I'm known as Radlib, so my wife is known as Mrs. Radlib. And um, we do a series that is quite different. We talk about uh, things like courtship, uh, homeschooling, drawing on our experience, my wife's experience, (laughs) schooling all these children. Uh, Tomorrow we'll be talking about sex, believe it or not. Uh, The episode is going to be called Sex and Society. and uh, so some people who might not enjoy my economics find that they really enjoy the Mrs. Radlib series. So I recommend that to you as well. All That's all on my channel. And the newer thing I'm doing is uh, on Substack. It's called radicalliberation.substack.com. It's free. Some people are monetizing on Substack. I am not. And I just have two pieces out now, but I have a couple more about to come out um, where I, what I have right now addresses first... Um, egalitarianism, and then secondly, uh, the destruction of Europe, uh, by which I mean the destruction of what we've been talking about in this conversation, the, the long, slow destruction over the last several hundred years of a decentralized political order, but then also European culture, European art, and finally, European people themselves, I think are in some danger at this point. So I, I wrote about that on my substep. So, I think that's enough, showing. Thank you.
1: <laughs> yeah, no, I, I always like to give my guests this opportunity. And uh, I think those are very interesting things, not just to myself, but to my audience. So, I will Good. make sure that they have access to all of that in the description. But uh, I once again want to thank you for coming on and uh, hope you have a wonderful rest of your day. Thank
0: you. you must stop the terror. I call upon all nations to do everything they can to stop these terrorist killers. Thank you. Now watch this drive.